Yes. Shalom. Erev Tov. You all know what that is? That's Hebrew for good evening. If we say Boker Tov or Broken Tov, that's good morning. <laughs> that's, the, that's the Oklahoma version of the Hebrew there. We just say Broken Tov. Everybody knows what we're talking about. Uh, uh, the um, Last night, um, when I came before you, um, my topic was to cover the Passover and the spring feasts. But the one thing that I didn't do last night was I didn't take you to the actual scriptures where the commandments were at. Instead, what I wanted to do and purposely did was I'm aware of the fact there's a bunch of you getting ready to observe the Passover for the very first time uh, and, and or you're renewing your observance of the Passover. And I want to encourage you as much as I could. And the emphasis that I wanted you to know was the most Christian thing I've ever done in my life was eat, was have the Passover. It's really all about the Messiah. And in fact, in the Gospel accounts, as I shared with you last night, it is the dominant subject um, in the Gospels when it talks about the ministry of the Messiah. It was all building. The Messiah came for the purpose to be the Passover lamb and the fulfillment of the bulk of the prophecies of him being the Messiah, doing the work of redemption, was to come to eat the Passover with his disciples, then to be arrested and to be slain uh, as the Passover lamb, uh, and he was buried, and then to be resurrected. That whole concept, that whole story is what Passover is all about. And in fact, I shared with some of you that if you follow a traditional Passover Seder, the order of the Passover, you will go through all the elements that the Messiah in eating the final meal with his disciples did, right down to the washings that he did with the disciples, down to the dipping in the bitter herbs with Judas for the betrayal, uh, to eating the meal, to what was done after the meal when he took the, the special bread that was broken and he used it to commemorate his body, the special cup, the cup of redemption, where it was used as the cup of, to establish the new covenant, and finally completed with the gospel accounts that they sang some hymns, and then they went out to the garden. And all of those elements that are described to us in the gospels, in, in about Yeshua having this, those are the elements of how we memorialize and we keep the Passover Seder today. And I'm saying this as a Jewish person, we Jewish people, this is the way we've always been doing it before Yeshua showed up, and we've been doing it ever since. And my Jewish brethren have no concept that it's all about the Messiah. They have no idea. It is like this blindness has come in, as Paul talked about. And they just can't see that piece of broken bread that we wrapped in linen cloth and we put it in the house and we put a pillow over it called the stone. The children steal it. The father calls for the Afikoman to come forth, which is the picture of the resurrection. And then they come back and report in this part of the game of the Passover. The stone has been moved. All we found was the linen cloth. The bread's gone. You know, and it's the whole picture of the gospel story of the resurrection. And it's all laid out in the Passover Seder. And it's just uh, when, when, when most Christian folks come in and they get to eat their first Passover Seder, they're stunned that here is this festival that's been going on for literally thousands of years, 
And it's like the greatest teaching there is of what is in the Gospels of what Yeshua did with his disciples. And I wanted to incentivize all of you because I believe this assembly here, that the people are here, you do believe that Yeshua is the Messiah. And I want to tell you that he invites you every year to come and sit and eat the Feast of Redemption with him. And that rather than what we've traditionally been taught, which is just a little crumb and a little, little thing in a little cup, you know, that's not a feast. That's an element that comes out that we try to use as a substitute for eating the feast. Why in the world don't we eat the feast? Well, it has a lot to do with church history. And a lot of church fathers said, oh, my goodness, that's a Jewish thing. We don't want to do a Jewish thing. And so they changed it and they pulled away from it. And it's not a Jewish thing. It's a biblical thing. This ordinance of these appointed times, they were given to the people who believe in the God of Israel. And I can show you emphatically in the law that these commandments are given to the native-born, that is, an actual biological descendant of Jacob, and to the alien and sojourner who may join with you, and there shall be one law and one commandment for all people. That's the way Moses and God gave these commandments. These are not commandments expressly for one segment of part of Israel. These commandments were given to all the people of God, anyone who believes in the God of Israel and believes in Messiah King of Israel. These are commandments for him. Now, in my instruction, in my past background, that's not the way it was taught to me. I was told that all this stuff is a bunch of Jewish stuff. We don't do that. That's Old Testament. We don't do that. We do New Testament stuff. Well, if that's the argument, what do you think the New Testament is teaching when Yeshua sat down and ate the Passover? It flat says he ate the Passover, so why don't we eat the Passover? Why don't we eat the Passover? That's what Yeshua did with the disciples. That was keeping the commandment. We're supposed to follow the example of Yeshua, right? Aren't we supposed to follow the example of the Messiah? Isn't this what he did with his brethren? And he specifically said in the midst of it, do this every time you do and remember me. That's the teaching of the appointed times of the Lord. It's all about the Messiah. Now, with that as a review of last night, I do want to take you to actually in the law, in the Torah, where it teaches the commandments of the appointed times of the Lord. It's in Leviticus chapter 23. Anybody that studies this knows Leviticus 23 is where we see all the appointed times. And so uh, here are the instructions. Now, before I go any further, let me say something very specifically to you. God does not call these suggestions. They're not guidelines. He says, if you believe in me and you follow me, you are commanded to do this with me. And every year we are to follow these instructions. Why would God give this commandment, these memorialization things? Why would he tell his people, I want you to do this every year? One, it is to remember. Remember what I have done in the past. 
I want you to to do it and be a part of it. I want you to understand your part of what I've been doing in the past. And number three, there are things I'm going to be doing in the future, and this will give you a hint. It will show you what I'm going to do. It's going to show you the big plan that I'm working to, and I want you to know the plan so you can be a full participant. You know, the God we serve is the God of the past, the God who is, and the God who will be. And by the way, when he talks, he teaches this in eternal terms. And every one of these teachings has a thing in the past, has something in the present, has something in the future. Now, when the Messiah came the first time, he took the first uh, four of the seven appointed times and he fulfilled them. From the Passover to the Feast of First Fruits, to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, to the Feast of Weeks, all the way from him offering himself up, all the way to the giving of the Holy Spirit. Now, tonight I'm going to be emphasizing the last three appointed times. They come in the fall. And in the September and October time frame, that's when these things would occur in our normal cycle of the year. And they include the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. The, day, the Feast of Trumpets is a one-day event. It's on the first day of the month of Tishri. The Day of Atonement is on the tenth day of the same month. And the Feast of Tabernacles begins on the fifteenth of the month and extends for eight days. So the month of Tishri has all of these fall holidays falling within it. A Passover begins in the month of Nisan. We're in the month of Nisan right now, and it usually occurs in late March, generally in April, and extends through the springtime. And usually Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, is usually in late May, early June. This year, it comes right at the first part of June. I think it's June 3 this year when it occurs. Now, part of understanding these is you need to have a little bit of understanding. You know, there is a Hebrew calendar versus the calendar we use. We use a Roman calendar. Um, that's the culture and heritage of our country that extends down as remnants of the Roman Empire and so forth. And the name of our months are based on the Roman calendar from January through December. But in the Hebrew calendar, the months have different names. They're in the Bible uh, that you can see. And so part of kind of understanding part of God's appointed times is to understand a little bit of the calendar difference uh, from that. Um, and just let me comment just for a moment uh, on that. Um, with us, a month begins in the Roman calendar based on the calendar. You know, some we have some months with 30 days, 31 days, not in the Hebrew calendar. Everything is based on the cycle of the moon. When we have the first sliver of the new moon, when it's, the, it's a, a waxing full moon, the very first light of the first of the moon is the first day of the month, and we have a sequence of basically 12 months. Now, this is going to get complicated, but just hang on with me, okay? 12 months. The lunar cycle only operates on 29 days. A lunar cycle is only about 29 days. It's not 30 days. So there are some months in the Jewish calendar that are 29 days, and some are 30 days, and that's how they make the slack. 
Now, if you just had 12 months in the Hebrew calendar, the whole thing would get askewed and the whole seasons would go all off kilter because in a short year where we only have 12 months in the calendar, the number of days in the Hebrew calendar is 353, 354, or 355 days. It's not 365 days. That's solar. The Hebrew calendar is lunar-based. When we have a long year, that's when we add the 13th month. We have an ADAR 1, ADAR 2. These are the last two months of winter. When we add that to make sure that springtime always comes at springtime and the fall always comes at the fall, we, we do this. And it's a cycle of 19 years. There's seven leap years, and there's seven long years in a 19-year cycle. And when we do that, um, the, we have 13 months, and then the number of days of those years, which we call a long year, is 383, 384, 385 days in a year. And you remember the scripture where it talks about uh, the coming of the Lord, and unless those days had been cut short, no flesh would have survived. He's referring to it will be a short year. It won't be a long year that year. It'll be a short year. It's one of the clues uh, to the coming of the Lord. And you basically have to kind of know what this is. So what you need to do, if you're really going to keep the holidays, if you're really going to get into the appointed times, you need to get a calendar that kind of integrates them all together. And by the way, our ministry, we publish a calendar for the Messianic movement. It shows the regular calendar days and the Roman calendar. It shows the Hebrew calendar, you know, so you can... Where, where do they all line up and where do they appear? Because every year you're going to be going around saying, now when is Passover this year? Because it's not on the same day it was last year. And it is on the Hebrew calendar, but not on the Roman calendar because of the variations of the moon from the sun. All right, so that's kind of a background. That's the technical stuff, you know, that's associated with it. So let me now read to you the commandments, which they are all based on a Hebrew calendar. Not a regular calendar, all right? This is Leviticus chapter 23. These are the commandments of the Lord. Here's what it reads for us in chapter 23, beginning at verse 4. These are the appointed times of the Lord. The word, the term appointed times in the Hebrew is called the Moedim. And so when you ever hear somebody talking about we're keeping the Moedim, we're keeping the appointed times of the Lord. Holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the times appointed for them in the first month, which is the month of Nisan. Now, mind you, let me really confuse you. That's not the first month of the year. That's the first month of the season of the appointed times. It's a little bit like this. Um, January in our regular calendar is the first month of the year. Are we all agreed? January is the first month. But if you're a football fan, that's not the first month of the year. Okay, if you're a football fan, the first month of the year is somewhere around August. Okay, and your year extends from August through around about February. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay, that's a football year. If you're a basketball fan, your year usually begins somewhere around November and extends all the way through March and April. Are you with me? It depends on what you're doing. Now, if it's the appointed times, 
the first month of the appointed times is going to be the month of Nisan, which comes in the spring. There's another name for it. We call it Aviv. Aviv is actually the word for spring. It comes in the month of spring. So this is the, this is the month of spring. See all the blossoms out there? Month of Aviv. Um, and this is the appointed times. He says in verse 5, in the first month on the 14th day of the month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. Then on the 15th day of the same month, there is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall see eat unleavened bread. And on the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work. For, but for seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. And on the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work. Do you remember that in the Gospels when they were talking about when the Messiah ate the Passover and then he was crucified, and specifically they were saying that they had to take his body down and they had to bury him because that was day was a day of preparation, and they were getting ready for the high Sabbath, and that Sabbath was a high Sabbath. Uh, what it's saying is, as the commandment says here, Passover is on the 14th day, but the observance of the Passover is in the nighttime. It's at twilight, at the beginning of the day. And by the way, a Hebrew day begins at sundown. It doesn't begin at midnight. Uh, the day begins at sundown. So at twilight, as you see it get dark and you begin to see the that is the Lord's Passover. And you eat it at night, not in the daytime. And then that night, coming around to the next day, that's still Passover day, and that day of Passover is now called the day of preparation for the next day, the 15th of Nisan, which is a high Sabbath for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And there are seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, you eat unleavened bread on the Passover. But then we have seven days where we still eat unleavened bread in all of our meals for seven days. The first day of the Feast of Unleavened is a high Sabbath. The seventh day of the Feast of Unleavened is a high Sabbath. Let me tell you why he's done that. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread is when Israel walked out of Egypt. On the seventh day is the day they crossed the Red Sea and were completely out of the land of Egypt. So the seven days, we are remembering the days of haste. We're leaving Egypt and we're going to cross the Red Sea on the seventh day. So we commemorate the day we leave and begin the journey. And we commemorate the day we crossed the Red Sea and we're completely out of Egypt. Seven days is the escape from Egypt. And we eat the bread of haste. We remember that. We commemorate that. Now, you go a little bit further into uh, chapter 23. It gives an additional instruction that is in that same time frame. If you look at verse 9, it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel. And say to them, when you enter the land which I'm going to give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And specifically what we're talking about 
is in the springtime is when the barley becomes ripe. We're not talking about wheat. Wheat becomes ripe later in the summer, in the springtime. But the first grain harvest is barley. And they bring these barley sheaves into the priest, into the temple, and they make a wave offering before the Lord. They wave these sheaves. And this is to be done, if you read here just a little bit further, and it says, verse 11, And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord for you to be accepted on the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. So let me explain kind of what it is. You have Passover. You have these high Sabbaths of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But somewhere in that Feast of Unleavened Bread is going to be a weekly Sabbath. There's a Sabbath every seven days. And so somewhere in there, we're going to have a regular weekly Sabbath. And so the instruction is, on the Sabbath that's after the Passover, and on the day after that weekly Sabbath, the priest is to take the barley sheaves and wave them before the Lord. Now, here was the ceremony, and here's what they were doing. They actually had a special field that the priests actually planted the barley in. There was a very specific thing that they did to support the temple service, and they would go check. And what they do is they bring the barley sheaves in, and they would wave them before the Lord because here was the testimony. The seeds of these plants, the seeds had died. Those seeds had been buried into the earth. And then waters of salvation, waters and rains, had come and germinated those seeds. And new life had come forth from those dead seeds and had sprung up through the earth in creating a new plant, and that new plant was now bearing an abundance and a harvest of new seed. And so what they were commemorating, that God had taken that which had died and had been buried and had now raised it in newness of life, and what they were doing is they were celebrating the resurrection of life. And, by the way, this is the day... Well, the, the priests are in there. That's the day that Yeshua was seen coming out of the grave. So he was resurrected, the new life that had sprung forth from the dead. He was dead. He'd been buried. Now he comes to life again. And they're in the temple praising God and saying, Thank you, God, for the resurrection of life. And here's the Messiah being resurrected. So we, we observe the Feast of first fruits to remember the resurrection of the Messiah. Now, in the church, you probably never heard of the Feast of First Fruits. They call it Easter. They have it Resurrection Sunday. Okay? And by the way, the reason why they do it on Sunday is because the day for the Feast of First Fruits is always going to be on a Sunday. Why? Because it's the day after the Sabbath on Saturday. That's the connection. That's how they hook them up together. But, but it's got to follow Passover. And by the way, the church sometimes does Easter in front of Passover and sometimes two weeks after Passover, and they don't link them uh, to the Passover at all. You know, it is my instruction to you. It is my exhortation to you. You need to get back to what Yeshua did with his disciples and follow those instructions so that you can get the full benefit of what the Lord is trying to show us and teach us. So you observe the Passover, and then you track Okay, where's the weekly Sabbath? Oh, I want the first day after that Sabbath. That's when we're going to celebrate the resurrection of the Messiah. Feast of first fruits. 
And it goes on further to say, as I said, it comes down to uh, what we call the counting of the Omer. And the counting of the Omer is that day that that piece of first fruits do, that's day one, and you're going to count from that point seven complete Sabbaths. You're going to count seven full weeks. On the morrow, or the day after the seventh Sabbath, on that day, which is the 50th day, you are then going to observe a one-day one day feast called the Feast of Weeks. And because we counted seven weeks. And it's also commonly called Pentecost. You've heard of that. Because it's day 50. Pentecost, penta means 50. And so it's called the day of the 50 count. And you count the omer. Um, and, the, and the scripture goes on to count exactly how you do it. As a matter of fact, let me give you verse 15. You should count also for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, after the day when you brought in the sheaf of the wave offering, you shall count seven complete Sabbaths. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you should present a new grain offering to the Lord. And by the way, the new grain offering is you now take the wheat harvest that has come in, you mill that, you make loaves, and you wave two complete loaves of bread before the Lord. The first one was just the sheaves and the grain, but now we have the full product of the loaves, the bread. And, of course, we believe bread is a symbol of God's daily provision. Your daily needs, God gives you bread. Okay? And on that day, historically, in the Bible, we read about Acts chapter 2, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. God gave the Holy Spirit to us. And that's, how, you know, after the Messiah, you know, went to the, sit at the right hand of the Father, and we have the Holy Spirit now uh, to guide us and lead us uh, into all truths. Now, that gets us through the spring feast, so now we're going to come to the fall feast, and that's what we're going to talk about a little bit more this evening. Uh, you see the commandment for it, and it begins in verse 24. Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first of the month, that would be the month of Tishri, it comes in September or in October. Um, on the first of the month, on the first day, you shall have a rest, a reminder by the blowing of trumpets and a holy convocation. And on this day, we Jews typically refer to this as Rosh Hashanah. This is the head of the year, it turns out this is the month of the creation count. Remember, there's a calendar that was based on the appointed times, but it happens to coincide. This is now the turn of the year for the counting of how many years has God since he created the world. And this is the first day of the counting of the years. And so on the Hebrew calendar, uh, it counts over another year. On Rosh Hashanah, and you've heard it expressed as Jewish New Year. Rosh Hashanah, head of the year. Um, and the first thing that we do is we blow trumpets. How many of you ever heard a shofar blown? You know, the shofar trumpet blown? Okay. Very distinct sound. Okay. The reason why we want to hear the sound of the shofar is because we're told in the Scripture that when the resurrection comes, that's the sound we'll hear. That's the sound we'll hear coming from heaven. So... 
We say on Rosh Hashanah, happy are the people who hear the sound of the shofar. You want to hope you hear the sound of the shofar so you'll get resurrected and you'll make it to the Lord. Amen? No, no, no. Say amen. amen. You want to be with the Lord. Believe me. When that trumpet sounds, you want to hear that. Okay? Um, but it's also a fun day because we call it the day of the blowing of trumpets. And so we, the idea is, my thing back here is hanging up or it's hooked behind my chair. That's the reason why I'm having a problem. Um, I'm almost being killed here. Um, the, um, um, let me just tell you just real briefly about the shofar. There are four shofar trumpet blasts. Okay? There is one which is called the tekiah. And just like the word sounds, it's tekia. You know, it's just a you know a quick two-note thing. Tekia, it's a short blast. There is one called the shavarim. The shavarim is the one that goes tekia, tekia, tekia. You know, we it, there's there's a there's a set of three. And then there is what is called a teruah. Now the sound teruah is is actually phonetically what a shofar sounds like. Tarua, you know, that's actually, you're making the sound of the shofar. But that is the one which is the sound of war or alarm. And when we blow a tarua, it has the staccato notes where it goes, it goes tarua, ta 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 you know, you know, it's a, like an alarm. It's like a, a burglar alarm going off, you know, and it's God's alarm for it. And then we have the final blast, which is the great blast of the trumpet. It's called a Tetkiah Haggadal. Haggadal means great. It's very large. And so a good shofar blower, he'll go Tetkiah, and he'll carry the blast out to where you're like, breathe, man. <laughs> and he keeps blowing. And then you see an old guy like me blowing the tequila hagodon. You're going, that guy's going to have a heart attack. And the idea is you carry it out as long as you can. And the proper way to blow that is you don't just kind of let it peter out at the end. You know, you don't let. No, you hit a burst right at the end where it's tequila. You know, it's abrupt and very quick. The reason why that blast is. That's the one at the resurrection. That's the one that brings you out of the dead. And that's the one that announces the coming of the Messiah. That's the one that gets everybody's attention. The great blast of the trumpet. So why do we have a piece of trumpets? To practice. Happy are the people who hear the sound of the shofar. We learn these sounds so that when the day comes and you hear this sound, you go, I know what that means. That's not going to surprise me. Other people are going to be going, what the heck is that? You know what it means. You've been taught to hear the trumpet of the Lord. And by the way, the scripture tells you at the coming of the Lord, there will be the sounding of the trumpet of the Lord. So the Lord teaches you to hear the sound of the shofar. And we practice every year. Now, the next one in the fall, that's on the first of Tishri. By the way, let me give you one other thing about that. Um, because the start of the month 
in every Hebrew month is based on the sighting of the first sliver of the new moon. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, you have to kind of anticipate, but you don't know it's the first day until you actually see the sliver of the moon. Now, for you and me, that, that's a very common thing. You go out, and if you see a new moon, we always call it the fingernail moon. You know, you're seeing a fingernail moon. That's a new moon. And it's in the western sky. And so when we're anticipating the, the start of the month, we're always looking at the western sky, and the sun down goes, are we, going to see the, are we going to see it tonight? And there's always a question about, is this the night, or is it going to be next night? And then, when it does show up, is it enough of a sliver and at what time does it appear? Sometimes it even appear in the early evening. Sometimes it's later in the, in the night that it finally shows up. Uh, so you're not quite sure exactly which day it is, and you're not quite sure exactly what time it's going to appear. And so this is what we say of the Feast of Trumpet. No man knows the day or the hour. That's a Hebrew idiom for the Feast of Trumpets. Do you remember... When they were asking Yeshua and they were talking about his coming, and he said, you know what he was saying? That's a Hebrew idiom. The coming of the Lord is going to be associated with the Feast of Trumpets. Not just any time. He's going to be coming to fulfill the Feast of Trumpets, and he's going to sound the trumpet, and that's going to be it. Now, um, if you go up to a Jewish person, not, not a believer like me, you go up to just your standard Jewish person and ask the question, um, do you believe in the resurrection? Yes. Uh, when will the resurrection be? Well, I don't know which year it is, but it will be on the Feast of Trumpets. Every Jew knows when the resurrection is going to be. It's going to be on a future Feast of Trumpets. That's when the trumpet will be sounded, and that's when the dead are going to be raised. And so when Yeshua is talking about the second coming, and he's talking about the rapture, and those who are dead in the Messiah will be raised first, and we who are alive will be caught up, and we'll hear the great trumpet. So he's talking about Rosh Hashanah. He's talking about a future Rosh Hashanah. That's when this happened. And oh, by the way, no man knows the day or the hour. And he's, he's telling you it's the Feast of Trumpets. Now, I grew up Baptist, and I was uh, into eschatology and so forth. I was always told nobody knows. It, it could be any time. You know, it uh, could be at any moment. Um, let me teach you a Hebrew word that explains that teaching. I'm going to teach you a Hebrew word, three-syllable word. I want you to pronounce it with me. The first syllable is ba. Everybody say ba. Okay. Second syllable, lo. Say lo. And the last syllable is ni. Say ni. The Hebrew word is ba-lo-ni on that other teaching. <laughs> That's a little Hebrew joke. Um, we all know when the resurrection is. It's at a feast of trumpets. He will fulfill the feast of trumpets. We will hear the trumpet of God. He's been telling us to practice to listen to the trumpet. So it's not some other time. He's coming to fulfill the fall feast. Just like he fulfilled the spring feast, he's going to come and fulfill the fall feast. And the first thing he's going to do is show up and we're going to have the resurrection. We're all going to join him in the clouds. Well, let me tell you why you're going to go to the clouds. Um, we're supposed to get a new body at that time. 
We're supposed to get a body like the body of the Lord. Now, let me tell you after the resurrection, let me tell you a little something about this body he had. Um, he apparently could adjust the molecular density of his molecules to the extent that he could walk in, appear to be visible, sit down at a table, eat lunch with the disciples, get up from the table, and walk through the wall. He was able to stand and talk with the disciples, and when it was time to come, float up into the air into the clouds. His density is molecules. He could adjust it, and he could become lighter than air. He could become thinner than a wall, and yet at the same time, he could also sit with you, chat with you, do things with you, eat with you. Wouldn't you like to have a body like that? Let me tell you, if you had a body like that, let me tell you what you could do. There's not a disease in the world that could affect you. Your body would be immortal. Did you know that in Isaiah 60, it describes you and me with those bodies? In fact, quickly go there. I'm going to show that to you. Um, And it poses the question because it's seeing us in that state. Isaiah 60. Now I'm looking here for it's I'm looking for the verse that says, uh, who are these who fly to the lattices and um, ascend to the clouds? Which verse? Verse 8. That's it. Here's the verse. Who are these who fly like a cloud and like the doves to the lattices? Who are the people who can go from the earth and say, you know, I think I'd like to fly there this time. Let's go ahead and rise up to the clouds and float along with the clouds, and then we'll come back down again. Oh, I really would like a better view on this. Why don't I go ahead and float up on top of the tree? Let me stand up on the, the edge of the roof there. And you don't climb. You just... Because you adjust your body and it goes there. See, when we get resurrected, when the Lord comes back, he gives us the new body. Guess what? The default mode is float. And we all rise. It takes a little bit, apparently, for us to learn how to get back down again. But initially, we come up to the clouds with the Lord so that we can view everything, because we have to get off of the surface of the earth. Because what follows ten days after that in Leviticus 23 is called the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, as called here, every prophet refers to the Day of Atonement as the Day of the Lord. The Day of Reconciliation. It's the day that we make atonement. And, by the way, the Hebrew word for atonement, what it really means is it says, whatever was the issue that was between you and God, it is now resolved. There is no longer a conflict between you and God. You have been atoned. It's not that you were saved. We're already saved. 
But you and I still aren't reconciled to God and everything that's going on here. But there is a day of atonement coming when even every enemy is going to be, the issue is going to be resolved with God. And thus, it's a day of reconciliation. God comes back and judges his enemies. And that's over. That's done. They're gone. We don't have a problem anymore. The day of atonement. We are given the specific commandment in here. Let me read it to you. Um, where, let's see, here it is. Verse 27. On exactly the tenth day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. And you shall humble your souls and present an offering by fire to the Lord. Neither shall you do any work on this day, for it is a day of atonement to make atonement on your behalf before the Lord your God. If there is any person, this is, this is very severe for this particular one. If there is any person who will not humble himself on this same day, he shall be cut off from his people. As for any person who does any work on this same day, that person I will destroy from among the people. You shall not do any work on it. It is a perpetual statute throughout your generations and all your dwelling places. It is a Sabbath of complete rest to you, and you shall humble your souls on that day. Actually, let me tell you, it gives additional explanation. It says you shall afflict your souls. So what do we understand that to be? On that day, you seek no pleasure, not even the pleasure of food. This is a day you fast to the Lord. You are somber. You are quiet. You do not go out to seek to do any pleasurable thing. You remain quiet before the Lord. Why? Because God wants to teach you on the day that I come back and judge the world, you will not be rejoicing. There is nothing to rejoice about when God has to come back and destroy his enemies. This is a little bit like, um, I don't know if you grew up in a home like this, but I did. I had a father. And if my father had to um, punish any of my siblings, this was not a time to be laughing this was not a time to be joking around. If Dad had to discipline one of us, everybody else better shut up and be real quiet. Because he took no pleasure in having to punish him, and we better understand that this punishment business is very serious. And so God has commanded us, like our Father, that the day I come to punish the world... You are not going to be rejoicing. You be humble, you be quiet, and you wait until I'm done. There's only one day that we have to do that. And it's a reminder to us about the future punishment that the Lord is going to put out on the world. And so we prepare ourselves. Now, the ten days between Rosh Hashanah, one Tishri, to ten Tishri, the Day of Atonement, we refer to as the Days of Awe. In those ten days, we call it the days of fear. We believe that every year, beginning on that day, for those ten days, the eyes of God move to and fro over the earth, and he makes the decision who is going to live and who is going to die this year. 
He is the Lord who gives, and he is the Lord who takes away. He is sovereign when it comes to life and death. And we respect that. One of the exhortations that we give to one another on the Day of Atonement, the only cheerful greeting, we don't, we don't walk up and go, Shalom. This is the greeting we give. May your name be found in the book of life. May God look upon you and say, you shall live. And we respect him as the true judge of all of mankind to do so. And we're trained to be respectful and humble when he has to decide. One of the things the Day of Atonement will teach you is the following. Um, okay, let's have a conversation here. We've got a fellow here. He's a good guy, and he does a lot of good things. He's nice to people, and he says he's a believer and so forth. And this other guy who's standing beside him, he's a scumbag, and he's a terrible person. He's an unbeliever. We don't like him whatsoever. So who's going to heaven and who's going to hell? Well, your average Christian says, well, you know, the good guy, he's going to heaven, and the other guy's going to hell. That is a person who does not know what the Day of Atonement is. The proper answer is, only the Lord knows. And I will not usurp the authority of the one true judge and try to speak for him as to who lives and who dies. I don't know. That's his decision, not mine. And I'm not going to be dumb enough to go around acting like I think I'm God. The Day of Atonement is to teach you, you be humble. He's the judge. Be quiet. Now, come up and ask me about what do I think is the path to eternal life. I can repeat to you and tell you what the Lord has said. Believe in the Lord. Turn to the Lord Jesus. Believe in him and his resurrection that he's been sent by the Father. That is what he said. If you do that, you'll receive the promise of eternal life. But I cannot pronounce your eternal reward or judgment. I can tell you what the Lord has said, but I cannot make that final judgment on anyone, even if it looks obvious. Let me illustrate my point. Yeshua taught this. Remember when Yeshua was crucified? There were two other people who were condemned with him. You remember that the one the Lord said to him, you'll be with me in paradise? You remember that? Was it the one on the right or the one on the left? They were on either side of him. Which one? Was it the one on the right or the one on the left? Now, the Scripture says one went to paradise, one didn't go. Which one? You don't know. Yeshua knows. That's all that counts. So for us, at the Day of Atonement, we learn God is the one true judge. He's the one true. Just let him do that. That's his job. That's not my job. James says it this way to us. There's one judge and one lawgiver. Who are you to judge your brother? Does he not say that? Now, I can offer instruction for correction. I can exhort you to do the things of the Lord. I can say, suggest to you, you should keep the commandments of the Lord. But I cannot pronounce to you 
that you're going to heaven or you're going to hell. You will be in the kingdom. You will not be in the kingdom. I, I do not have the authority. I don't have the right to do that. And flat out, I don't know. And to think that I do, I'm usurping the authority of God, which, oh, by the way, qualifies as blasphemy and is worthy of death for doing it. I don't know if you ever had the experience, but um, my brother one time uh, yelled out at me when I got in trouble with my dad that I was guilty and I was in trouble and uh, dad was going to get me. And when dad heard that, dad got him too as well as he got me. And he gave the lesson to my brother. It is not your business what I do with your brother. That's my business. That's none of your business. You don't tell me how to discipline my son. I discipline my son, not you. And he gave the lesson. <laughs> don't say, don't usurp my authority. You do not make statements for me. And so that's what the Day of Atonement teaches. Isn't that an interesting instruction that we've never heard before? Not unless you keep the Day of Atonement and learn it. The final holiday of this in the appointed times is what we call Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, beginning at verse 34, it says, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, On the 15th of the seventh month is the Feast of Booths, which is the same thing as Sukkot or Tabernacles, for seven days to the Lord. On the first day is a holy convocation. You shall do no labor's work of any kind. For seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. And on the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and present an offering by fire to the Lord. It is an assembly. You shall do no labor's work. Now, it's a little bit tricky in the language. And he said, for seven days you're going to have the Feast of the Tabernacles. And then on the eighth day you're going to do this. It's really an eight-day festival. It's just the weird way he said it. So we have a high Sabbath on the first day of the 15th of Tishri which is the start of the Feast of Tabernacles. So what's the Feast of Tabernacles? We get up out of our houses, we go and we live in temporary dwellings. And we assemble as a camp to the Lord, become an assembly to the Lord, but you're out of your house. By the way, who all is commanded to do this? The Levite, the sick, the lame, the aged, the young, everybody. Everybody goes camping. No one is an exception. Everybody, the whole community, the whole camp goes. And so you get there, and the first day you have a holy convocation for it. Then you go seven full days. And then on the eighth day, here's the name of the day. It's Hoshana Rabbah. It is the great day of the feast. Let me tell you what they used to do in the temple on Hoshana Rabbah, it is the greatest day of worship of God. In the temple time, in the days of Yeshua, if you were anybody, if you were a king, a priest, a teacher, a rabbi, anybody of any significance, you went to the temple on that day, and they, you would crowd into the temple, and in fact, up in the ramparts, up in the upper walls, you could get up on the upper walls in the temple, and you got up there, and the whole temple was as packed as it could possibly be with all the leaders of the entire nation. And you were there to observe this one ceremony. They would take two priests, 
and they would dispatch one of these priests to the pool of Siloam, which is a pool which is down in the southern part, the lower part of the city. And Siloam means he who is sent. And you would take from the temple, you would go down into the depths of the city because the Siloam was way down low. And he would go down there with a pitcher to go and draw water out of this pool called the Pool of Siloam. The moment he drew the water out, guess what the water was called? Yeshua. I'm not making this up. It was called the waters of salvation. The actual Hebrew word is Yeshua, the waters of Yeshua. He would then be led by another priest playing a flute. This priest is called the pierced one because he would have a tube that had holes in it to make a flute. Have you ever heard of the Pied Piper? The idea of the guy who plays the flute. This is where it comes from. That's a temple ceremony in which the flute player, the pierced one, would bring the waters of salvation to Israel. Who do you know is the pierced one who has brought salvation to Israel? Is that a picture of the Messiah or what? And he would go up and ascend up to the top of the mountain, up to the temple, he would then walk in. He would then be met by another priest, and this priest now has a pitcher that has wine in it. One priest has the water. One priest has the wine. The wine at this point is called the blood. This is the ceremony of water and blood. These two priests would ascend up on top of the altar. There's two funnels set on the edge of the altar. These are, these are bowls that would collect the, what's poured out of, the, out of the pitchers. And they have a little spout that comes out the bottom and hangs over the edge of the altar. So that as the liquid go into this funnel... It would stream out in this little stream, and it would stream right down the side of the altar, and you could see the stream coming down the side of the altar. And the idea was to go up, and they would begin to pour, and as they would pour, they would raise up the pitcher as high as they could to make the stream so everybody could see it streaming into the funnel, and then you could see it going over the edge and trickling down the side of the altar. This is called the water libation ceremony. This is the only time water is ever taken to the altar. It is the highest ceremony of the altar service of the entire temple. It happens on Hoshana Rabbah, the great day of the feast. And if you were a leader in Israel, you wanted to be a witness to it. They were doing that ceremony when Yeshua, who was in the temple... Everybody's quiet when the ceremony is going on. When they did this ceremony, Yeshua called out loudly so that every leader of Israel could hear his voice. And he said, 
If any man is thirsty, let him come drink of me, for in him will spring up wells of living waters to eternal life. Man, he, he was pretty bold. You know what they said in the temple? No man would say these words except he be the prophet. And then others corrected it and said, no, no, no. He's not a prophet. No man would say these words except he be the Messiah. That's when he testified to who he was in the temple before every leader of Israel. Now let me tell you why that's so profound. John records it for us. That when Yeshua was crucified, and they pierced him, he said, I, John, in the gospel, I, John, am a witness to you. I saw the water and the blood stream from his body. I saw it. He's the ceremony. He's what the great feast is all about. He's the one. That's the testimony that's given to us in the Gospels. The only way you'd know about that is if you kept the Feast of Tabernacles and knew what the feast and the teaching was. You know, for it. So let me just say something real quick to you here. Keeping the feasts of the Lord and the appointed times is what teaches you about the, what the Messiah has done for us. How he is this prophesied sacrifice. He is the plan of God. And he's illustrating all the parts to us so that we can see it. So that we can come before him and worship him properly and recognize who he is for all that he's done. Now, there's another part I need to tell you. Um, just as the Messiah came in a single year and fulfilled the spring feasts, Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and then the Feast of Weeks, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, projecting forward when the Messiah comes the second time, there's going to be a single year in which the Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and the Feast of Tabernacles are going to be fulfilled. We know there's going to be a resurrection at the end, trumpets. We know there's going to be a day of the Lord. We know God's going to judge his enemies, atonement. Zechariah says, the prophet Zechariah, it says, when the Messiah returns and his toe touches down at the Mount of Olives and he returns to Jerusalem, the very first thing we're going to do with the Messiah is we're going to observe the Feast of Tabernacles with him. And the reason why we're going to do that is for a couple of very significant reasons, not the least of which is the Feast of Tabernacles is given to us with a very special, special commandment. It says it's what we call the commandment of rejoicing, and it's a double commandment. God commands us twice, you will rejoice before me. The reason why you're going to bring everybody out, all the family, everybody, old, young, kids, the whole bit, even people sick, you're all going to come out. And you're going to rejoice before me. Now, what, what exactly do we do? 
we're going to sing, we're going to dance, we're going to have a good time. We're going to have fun. And God says, I want you to come out, you're going to get into a camping environment, and we're going to have fun together. We're going to have campfires together, we're going to roast marshmallows, we're going to have fun. And you all guys are going to come out, and you're going to find out what it's like to have fun with all your brethren before the Lord. And here's what he says, and when you do this, I'm going to be in the camp with you. One of the things we get to do when we observe the Feast of Tabernacles, and I've been doing this for many years, it is the most fun for the whole year. I want to tell you a personal anecdotal story. I've been hosting the Feast of Tabernacles in Oklahoma, inviting brethren from all over the nation and encouraging Messianic assemblies, set up a Sukkot in your various areas, get into a camping bar, get people to get a tent, a hut, an RV, a tr something. Get out there. Get out of your house. Get your family out there. Get your kids out there and, and um, have fun. Eat a feast to the Lord and have a great time. And uh, it was the second year that I was hosting this, and we'd had a nice group of people come out and join us. Well, the, the feast had come to a conclusion, and um, people were loading up and leaving, and there was just a few people left in the camp, and I was still there. And, um, and I saw a, a camper that was up near the dump station. They were cleaning the camper out and getting ready to leave. And there was a mom standing in the doorway, and there's a little kid that belonged to her on, over in the field over here on the left side. And she's yelling out across the campground, says, okay, it's time to go, come on. And so this kid is running, you know, and, and answering mom. And the kid, I'm sitting there just watching, and the kid yells out and says, mom, can we come back to Sukkot next year? And mom says, well, yeah, I guess so. Did you like Sukkot? This is a kid. I'm not kidding. This is an exact quote. Mom, Sukkot is more fun than Christmas ever dreamed of being. Now, let me tell you what that kid learned. That kid is excited about keeping the appointed times of the Lord. And as he gets a little bit older, he's probably going to come to the point and he's going to say, well, the Lord comes back. What are we going to do? And then I'm going to be able to say to him, well, first thing we're going to do is we're going to observe Sukkot. And he's going to go, we're going to observe Sukkot. Well, let's get the Lord back here because that's fun. <laughs> that kid is ready to go to the kingdom. He's excited. He wants to be in the kingdom. He knows what the kingdom's going to be. You, people like you and me, we're going to go, well, the Lord comes back, Jeb. I'm not really sure what I'm going to do. And we're kind of trying to figure out if it's going to be a good deal or not. That kid knows it's going to be great. He's already learned that great joy comes from, because he fulfilled the commandment, he rejoiced before the Lord. And he found out what real joy and real fun is. Uh, when people come to Sukkot, I will give you, not only is that the testimony of children, I will tell you that I've done this many times. I've been with many brethren. And the testimony is always the same. I am definitely going to do this next year. 
I don't know how I'm going to get vacation time off. I'm going to do this next year. I've had more fun and more enjoyment in this eight days than I've had in my entire life. That's what you get out of it. The joy of the Lord. The joy of your salvation. And you begin to learn. Hey, you can experience that now. All you have to do is keep the appointed times. So that's the one that teaches you joy. It comes right on the heel of learning how to be humbled. It comes on the heel of learning the sound of the shofar. So it's the training program to get you ready for the coming of the Lord. Amen? Now there's something more that I need to tell you. Um, have you ever heard about people who think that the rapture and the resurrection takes place before the great tribulation? You know, pre-trib rapture. You ever heard that? That theory is kind of falling out of favor. It just doesn't line up with the scripture and uh, it's just not working out. And people are getting smart and they're getting skeptical and they're saying, yeah, that doesn't work. You know, by the way, what does the scripture say? It says, well, there's going to be a great tribulation and then there's going to be the sounding of shofar and then there will be a resurrection. That's what Yeshua said. He said there would be a great tribulation and then... There would be the sounding of the shofar, the gathering of the elect, and then the Lord would come back and we'd be with him in the kingdom. Like a one-year event. You know, like the month of Tishri. Trumpets, atonement, tabernacles. So they're kind of laying down that we get to escape the tribulation thing. So now people are going, well, you mean we're going to go through the tribulation? We're going to be here for that? And it's like, what the heck are we going to do? How do we get through that? So let me just go ahead and ask you. The world goes upside down for three and a half years. God is judging the world with a whole series of judgments uh, upon his enemies. Everybody hates you and wants to kill you because you're a Christian and a believer. And how were you planning on surviving that? Your job is gone. Your career is over. You will have to leave your house. Where are you going to go? And how do you survive three and a half years? That's a pretty interesting question. Let me just tell you very quickly what God says about that time. There are three destinies for the saints. There's the sword... There's captivity, and there are those who escape. In the sword, there's some people who are going to stand up, take arms, and they're going to try to defend themselves, and they're going to die. If you think you can shoot it out, you're probably going to lose in the first firefight. Number two, there's a lot of people who just don't know what to do. Say, I can't leave, I can't, I can't do it, you're going to be taken captive. Don't worry, you're not going to starve to death in a concentration camp. I can show you the exact scripture. It says, your tribulation will be ten days, be faithful unto death, and you'll receive the crown of life. That's what the prophecy says. If you're taken captive, that's your destiny. You're going to only be there ten days, and then you'll die, and you'll be with the Lord. But there's a third destiny. Those who keep the Feast of Tabernacles, who remember how our ancestors dwelt in the wilderness and were preserved by the Lord leaving Egypt. 
they will go into a camp of the righteous, into the wilderness of the peoples, in the same tent that they were keeping their Feast of Tabernacles in, God will provide you manna, he will provide you water, he will provide you defense, and you will walk by the pillar of the cloud like they did before, and he will lead you and keep you safe for three and a half years, and you will see the coming of the Lord. But the one thing he does not provide for you is a sukkah. You have to bring your own sukkah. You have to bring your tent. You have to bring your hut. Now, if you've been keeping the Feast of Tabernacles, you know how to do that. If you've never been keeping the Feast of Tabernacles, you ain't got the first foggy idea of how to do this. How do you join the camp of the righteous, and how do you bring your hut, and how do you do this? Because, oh, by the way, this setting up your sukkah, just coming out for eight days with your family and so forth, this is one of the things I try to teach husbands. Husbands, let me explain something to you about just going camping, just about this business for this holiday. One of the things you learn at the Feast of Tabernacles is that if you do not keep mama warm and dry, you will suffer great tribulation. <laughs> so when you take her out there, you make sure that you got a good sukkah for her. You make sure she's comfortable. And she probably is not all that excited about sleeping on the cold, hard ground. Okay? So you better make sure you got that taken care of. Okay? You better make sure that you've taken into account where does she do her daily duty at and how are we going to handle that? Because they're real sensitive about that subject. Okay? You better figure out how to do that. By the way, one of the commandments of the Lord is every man will bring a shovel. I'm not making this up. I'm not making this up. Every man, you better bring a shovel with you. Okay? Because that's part of your sukkah. That's part of taking care of mama. Okay? And by the way, there's a, if you go out camping and so forth, you're going to learn a whole bunch of other things about some other stuff that maybe you might want to bring with you. And so that you have a nice campsite. Now, if you go camping recreationally, you bring a whole bunch of different kinds of things, and you have fun. It's enjoyable. You're supposed to learn how to do that so you can take care of your family. So when the day comes that you need to escape and join with other brethren to escaping, your sukkah's ready to go, your gear's ready to go, and mama's ready to go, and you're going to get ready to go out and join the camp of the Lord. And you're going to be escaping and surviving and enduring to the end. Now, let me also tell you some really fascinating things in the prophecy about that. The Lord is also going to seal 144,000 saints. They will be mixed into the camp that will be there for your protection. When the enemy approaches, they will go out and face the enemy. Uh, he has an incredible plan on how to save his people at the end of the age. Let me summarize for you. It's modeled after when God saved Israel and brought them out of Egypt. You see, it turns out that that ancient story about Israel coming out of Egypt and going through the wilderness for 40 years, 
that was just the training program for what's supposed to happen to the final generation. In fact, this is the way Paul said it. He said, now those things that happened in the wilderness when Israel came out of the Egypt and so forth, those are for your ad- education and your admonition upon whom will fall at the end of the ages. The Bible says the day is coming when you and I will use the word exodus and we will not be referring to ancient Egypt. We will be referring to when God brings up his people from all of the nations of the world and delivers them in every nation where they're at so that they will see the coming of the Messiah despite all of the other people in the world being judged and hating you and the whole bit. It's going to be the greatest salvation and deliverance ever. It's called the greater exodus. When we keep the appointed times of the Lord, we are remembering what the Messiah did when he came the first time. The great work of redemption. Him being the Passover lamb. All of the things he's done to enable us to answer the questions so that we know that we have forgiveness, the gift of eternal life, and when this whole thing is over with, we're going to be in the kingdom with him. But the fall feasts are trying to prepare you for what's going to happen at the end when the Messiah returns. Because when he returns, there will be a great tribulation. Three and a half years. Let me just tell you real briefly, the last five months of that, the world will be in darkness. It says some kind of heavenly body, an asteroid, a comet, something strikes the earth. It bores an abyss into the earth. It blows debris up into the atmosphere of the earth, probably touches off several volcanoes. And the whole atmosphere is filled with smoke and debris and dust, and it blocks the sun and the moon and the stars out. And we're all going to be in darkness. The scientists scientists will tell you that if the earth ever endures such event, and that darkness lasts four months, it's what they call an extinction-level event that everyone on the earth will die. The Lord says, had he not returned, no flesh will survive. So the final days of the Great Tribulation, we all know, and everybody in the world knows, the whole world's dying. Nobody is going to make it. And in fact, if the Lord doesn't come back, there's no chance for anybody. But here's what he says. After five months, those clouds will scroll back. The the debris in the atmosphere will begin to collect. Actually, it's going to turn into giant hailstones that will be used at the day of the Lord. He will hit the world with giant hailstones. But as it's rolling back and it's preparing for that, 
that's when we see the sign of the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. And it's described to us in the Scripture that He will be seven times brighter than the sun. It will be in the northern hemisphere. And we'll see Him coming. And the reason why we'll know it's the Lord that's coming, the sign of Him coming, is the Scripture says that at, we'll sense that He's approaching us. We'll know He's approaching us because He's going to be blowing stars and constellations out of His way. The force of His presence coming through the universe will shake the powers of the universe, and He'll blow the universe to the sides as He comes right at us. It says we will see stars fleeing from Him, and He will be shaking the powers of heaven like unripe figs from a tree. He will shake the heavens this time. There's a scripture that says, you know, when God spoke from the, from the mountain, the Ten Commandments, I shook the mountain. You heard about some of that? He says, yet once more will I shake more than the mountain this time. I will shake the entire heavens. That's how powerful he is when he comes to the universe at us. It will be a frightful thing. You and I, we're told, lift up our heads, our redemption is drawing near. But it says that other men, they'll be climbing into holes of the earth, begging the mountains to crush them for fear of what is. And, it, and the question is asked, who can stand in the day of the wrath of the Lamb? There's only one people that can do that. His believers at the end of the tribulation, they are the only people who can stand before him. And as he approaches, he will speak from heaven, and everybody on the earth will hear it. It's called the seven thunders. It is so horrific as to what he's going to say, John was forbidden from writing them down. Only we will hear them in that day. And he will pronounce seven judgments on the world to be the true judge who would judge all of mankind and the whole earth. We survive that because then the trumpet will sound and we will be raised because we've got to get off the surface of the earth. Because when he hits the earth, let me give you the, kosher, the, the, the Jewish term, he's going to kosher the place. Uh, when you kosher something, you take a blowtorch to it. When the Messiah gets done judging the world, even dirt is going to be clean here. This will He will clean this place up so that we can live here with him in the kingdom. And we get resurrected, we're in the clouds, and then we float over, and we come to rest in Jerusalem, and we're excited and so forth, and then... He descends to the Mount of Olives, the mountain of the Messiah. His toe touches down, and he walks into Jerusalem and thus begins the kingdom. Yeah. And that day, we begin the Feast of Tabernacles with him. That's the pattern. That's the whole nutshell of the prophecy. Um, let me just go ahead and tell you something very brief. I've been at this for a long time. I've been teaching this for a long time. But not everybody hears this. And the Lord doesn't send me to everybody. The Lord only sends me to the people to tell you 
to get your sukkah ready. Start keeping these feasts so you can be part of this, so you can live, right? And not be afraid. Be strong and courageous. The Lord is with you. I um, uh, I tell this story, and it's part of my testimony. Many uh, years ago, when I began to do this, I I told the Lord. I said, Lord. All this stuff about the prophecy about the great tribulation, I mean, it's a, it's a horror story for crying out loud. You know, if I read the judgments, just before we get to the day of the Lord, you know half the people in the world are going to die. There's seven billion people in the world. In three and a half years, three and a half billion people are going to die. You know, the worst war, the worst thing that's ever happened in this world Maybe 150 million people have died in horrific historical events. But this one is going to be three and a half billion people die. That's the reason why it's a time of distress as the world has never seen. Anyways, it's on the first day of the Great Tribulation, it's a bad hair day. And it does not, does not get better after that. It just gets worse. And this is not a happy message to go out and share with people. Can I, can I just be honest with you about that? It's scary. It, you know, you start messing with the sun, the moon, the stars, and this planet, and we're, we're all me- we're, we're in trouble. Um, you start throwing nuclear weapons around each other, we're in trouble. War and famine, disease. People starving to death. This is bad. There is nothing good that you can come out of this thing. But the Lord says this is going to happen. This is the judgment that will be coming upon the world. And so I'm asking the Lord way back a long time ago. I said, hey, Lord, look, seriously, can you help me out here a little bit? I'm going to be going out and sharing this with people. Isn't there something encouraging I could tell them? And the Lord gave me something for you. He showed me three men in the kingdom. They were talking to each other. I mean, it's all over and done with. We're in the kingdom. And they're talking with each other. And one guy asked the other and says, hey, you know, congratulations on getting to the kingdom. Where, where were you at in the previous ages? You know, way back before the Lord came back. Where, where were you back in the history of the world? And the one guy answered and he said, oh, I was back there with Abraham when he was tending his flocks. Oh, well, that's cool. You know, you can tell us all about what Abraham did. Okay, great. They asked the second guy, where were you at? And he said, well, I was in the land of Israel when, when the Messiah was there with his disciples, and they were preaching the gospel from city to city. I, I saw what Yeshua did when he was back there. Oh, that's good. Then they asked the third one. They said, where were you at in the previous age? And he says, I was there at the end. I saw the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The other two guys are going to want to talk to him more than anybody else wants to talk to him. But when you get to the kingdom, let me tell you something. You're going to be a celebrity. Every prophet, every saint who's ever lived before, they're going to be asking you, tell us, what was it like when you were there and he came back? It'll be the most glorious, significant thing that's ever happened in the history of mankind and God. For some reason, you won the spiritual lottery. 
And you might just be the last generation that gets to do this. Do you feel really lucky? But let me tell you something. The only people that are going to make it through this thing, I'm serious, guys. Your life depends on this. You better start keeping the appointed times of the Lord. You better find out who this Messiah is. You better learn all about what he's been doing. And you better get your faith real strong to believe in him. Because I guarantee you the days are coming when your faith is going to be tested. And you need to endure. You need to survive. You need to believe in him. You need to believe that he knows you're there. He's going to protect you. He's going to deliver you. He will not forsake you. He will not leave you. And he will save you. And he will get you to the end. So you can see him coming. Because once we're in the kingdom, why, it's great, you know, but it's getting there. Um, I'm not going to go into telling you how close I think we are. But let me just tell you, you should not be hesitating anymore. You should be taking this matter seriously. I do believe we are the last generation. Now, I don't know which year it's going to happen. Um, but I believe it's going to be in this generation. I believe there's people in this room who are never going to suffer mortal death. I believe there's people in this room that will see the coming of the Lord, and you will be changed and get your new body when other people are being resurrected. And you're going to be, like I said, celebrities in the kingdom when we get there. Um, is that somber enough for you? <laughs> usually when I give these talks and people go home at night, they usually don't sleep real good that night. They usually do a lot of praying. I would encourage you to do that. You know. This book and these prophecies tell us all about it. But you have to be willing to read them, believe them, and start doing them. Do not just be hearers of the word. Be doers of the Lord. Don't just hear about the pointed times. Do them. Eat the Passover. Count the days of the Omer. Make your proclamation. Listen to the sound of the shofar. Humble yourself on the Day of Atonement. And get your sukkah ready and go out and have fun with the Lord. That's what teaches us how the Lord's going to come and what we're going to do. Um, 22 years ago, when I started Lion of Lamb Ministries, uh, very few people were keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. Very few. A couple of places. There were some random groups I heard that were doing that. Now, in 22 years, there are feasts of tabernacles popping up in virtually every state and every country of the world. This generation is hearing the message to return to Moses and start doing this. And I encourage you, find where the Feast of Tabernacles is being observed. Join with your like-minded brethren. Come out, have fun, bring the kids, have a great time, and get ready to rejoice before the Lord. Because bigger things are coming. Amen? Amen. All right, we're going to take a water break. 
I'm going to give you the opportunity. I'm going to give you about 10 minutes uh, for you to go drink some water, take a water break, come back, and then I'm going to give you the opportunity to ask questions. You can ask questions with regard to anything that I've talked about here. If you want to ask me other questions with regard to anything that uh, is in the Scriptures that you'd like to ask, um, anything about the Torah, anything about the commandments of the Lord, whatever, I'll be happy to answer any of your questions as best as I can. And uh, so we'll come back and we'll have a, another session I think you'll find be real interesting. Amen? So let's close with a word of prayer. Everybody take a break, and we'll come back here very shortly thereafter. Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you for this assembly, and thank you for the time that we've already been happening. Lord, I would pray that by your Holy Spirit you would quicken unto the, these brethren here your commandments. Um, illuminate them, Lord. Encourage them. Cause the commandments of you to be a delight to them, Lord, to encourage them and urge them, encourage them, Lord, to plan to come to the Passover, to begin to keep your appointed times and to enjoy the season of your appointed times this year and to learn all about your appointed times and be able to see the Messiah, the pinnacle of our faith in an even more clear and direct way. Thank you, Lord, for your commandments. Thank you for your instructions. We especially thank you for the gift of the Messiah, the Lamb of God, our redemption. And we do look forward, Lord, to you coming soon and establishing your kingdom soon and very soon. So we welcome you, Lord. Prepare us, train us, teach us up to be your people so that we might walk uprightly before you, as you would have us do. Thank you. In Yeshua's name, amen.
All right. Um, we are reassembled. This is an opportunity for you to bring up the topics, ask the questions you'd like to do. Nathan's got the microphone, you know, he's going to, so that everybody can hear the question and we'll go from there. So let's get going. Uh, who would like to ask a question first? Okay. Everything that you said, I understand. Um, now, when you're talking about when we see the Lord in the air and then we're going to fly to Jerusalem, does that start the millennia? The millennium actually begins on the counting of the millennium begins with the turn of the year, which is that whole sequence. And the, the first great day is the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, it is specifically cited in the prophecy as blessed is he who sees the 1,335th day. And that's 1,335th days from the very first day of the Great Tribulation. The marriage supper of the Lamb is that. The Feast of Tabernacles is the model for the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's when the bridegroom comes and tabernacles with the bride. And that's what the Feast of Tabernacles is all celebrating. So that's essentially the same thing. Go ahead. Okay. If that's the marriage supper of the Lamb. Right. And we're in like the millennia. Yes. Okay, well, aren't there some people in the, I thought, the marriage supper of the Lamb, um, you know that we're, we're, we're going to heaven, the new heaven. That's okay. the theory, but it's going to be in Jerusalem on the earth. The new heaven. Okay. Yeah. Well, the new heavens is when he, by the way, when he comes through the universe, he's going to rearrange all the constellations. It'll be a new heavens when he comes through. Well, then, when Satan is released after the... After a thousand years. years. Well, what about all the people that have let already me, had the marriage supper of the Lamb? Let, let me explain. Great question. Here, let me rephrase your question for the benefit of everybody else. So, here we have the sequence where the Lord comes back. We've been resurrected, raptured, and so forth. And, oh boy, we get to be with the Lord. We have the marriage supper of the Lamb. We have the Feast of Tabernacles. And we're, in the, and we're going to live for a thousand years. Well, the prophecy says at the end of the thousand years, Satan that whole time had been cast. He'd been bound and cast to a bottomless pit. He was completely out of the scene. We don't have any consequence, no problem with Satan while we're in the kingdom. Amen? But he gets released. That's one of my first questions for the Lord is, if you got him locked up, why does he get let loose? You know, that, but that's a question for the Lord later. And it says he comes back in an effort to tempt the world one last time. So let me tell you who's in the kingdom to begin with. There's you and I who we have come to know the Lord and we have the promise of no second death. When, what we've received of the Lord. But there's some other people that are going to be in the kingdom. Let me tell you, a whole bunch of people are going to be in the kingdom. You know, all of those children that didn't come to the age of accountability, who died, they're going to be raised and they get to live in the kingdom with the Lord. There's going to be all the children that we give birth to in the kingdom. In fact, the Lord tells us that when it comes to the His kingdom and children, you are to suffer for the children come to me.
for such is the kingdom. The kingdom is children. Okay? It's children that were before, and it's children that will be born in the kingdom. Now, you and I, we're going to rule and reign with the Lord over them. We will be the one training them up. We'll be raising them up. We'll be helping them. And so we have the promise of no second death. They don't have that. They get to live with the Lord, but they're going to be tested one time. They get to live with us, live with the Lord, but the, Satan gets a chance to tempt them one time. And he'll come back and attempt to get them to rebel against the Lord. There is this final judgment with that, and that's when then Satan goes to hell forever. And then there's a final judgment on what we call the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennial kingdom. Um, all of this is what I call tangential theology. You know what the word tangent means. That's something you have on the edge. Now, what we've been given in the scriptures is not fully complete. It's not fully comprehensive. We only have been given some little bits and pieces of the thing. And to tell you the truth, all I can repeat to you is what he said. Can I tell you all the ins and outs and how it's all going to work? I have no idea. All I know is what we have here right now, but he's told us there are some things that will be happening that will be a part of it. Um, and that's, that's the best explanation I have for you, is I think there's some people in the kingdom that were innocent, that they're going to be given an opportunity because God's going to be just about this. I think there's some children going to be born in the kingdom that didn't go through what we did. They have to make a decision. Satan gets one last chance, and then it's all decided. It's all over for eternity. What God's got planned next week after that, I have no idea. This We're just talking about what he's got planned this week, you know, kind of thing. So it's all hypothetical. It's based on very scant amount of information, so I call it all tangential theology. It's just very few facts that he gives to us on You're it. talking about at the end, right? Right, all the tangential way at the end. At the end, at the end of the, the thousand end. years. At the end of the thousand years, he hasn't really told us a lot about it. The only thing I know is it's going to be good, you know. But but he's telling us about the kingdom now. He's telling us about the choice of making him, us his bride, you know, for it. What I tell people, by the way, let me let me um, show you another verse uh, since you brought that up. In Isaiah 60, you know, where it's talking about we fly like clouds and all that. Let me show you another verse that it says there, which is has a bearing on what we just said. It is the, I think it's the last verse. Yeah, here it is. Um, verse 22. The smallest one will become a clan, and the least one a mighty nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. What he's saying is that a baby who comes into the kingdom, whether it's somebody who was a baby before in the ages and died and they come into the kingdom, or whether you're talking about somebody who's born right at the time the kingdom starts, that a baby will be raised up, grow, be established, multiply, and become, at a minimum, a mighty clan. So what's a mighty clan? A mighty clan is more than thousands. 
but it says the least of them, a very tiny child, shall become a mighty nation in the Messianic age. Um, I'm planning on being the father of many nations in the kingdom of God. My son, my daughter, my grandchildren, they, they will prosper, they will increase in the kingdom, become nations of their own, because the expanse of the millennial kingdom will be incredible. And there'll be a, all these new nations that will come up. And I'll be an elder, and I'll be a father known for I'm the father of many nations, like Abraham. I'll, I'll have the same thing. I'm planning on spending my first 500 years in the Messianic kingdom getting to know all of my ancestors. You know, going back and spending time with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all that. And then I'm planning on spending the last 500 years getting to know all of my descendants in the kingdom. That's my game plan. That's how I was going to kind of approach the kingdom. Because I will be busy getting to know all of the people in the kingdom that I'm connected to and, and apart with the Lord. Let me also add one other thing. I'll be a little bit facetious, but bear with me here for a moment. I love to grow tomatoes. I'm not kidding. I really do. And there's a kind of a joke between me and the Lord, because in the kingdom, we get to grow a lot of things. We're going to beat our swords and plowshares. We're going to get in the agriculture business. We're not going to learn war anymore. Okay? And that's what I used to do. I used to train people on how to war. You know, so I'm going to take all my expertise and I'm going to learn how to grow tomatoes better than anybody else. And I'm going to be in the kingdom. And about 500 years into the kingdom, I'm going to walk into the temple one day. And Messiah is going to be sitting in the shade talking to some brethren. And he's going to interrupt and say, hey, guys, you got to check this out. See this guy walking in here? That's Monty Judah. It's only taken him 500 years, but he just grew 12 perfect tomatoes to bring me. That is my idea of joy in the kingdom, is living with the Lord and getting to do those things. Live and enjoy my children and my family and all the people I love, you know, in the kingdom with the Lord. So in our terms as mortals today, right now, it's just hard for us to understand the infant, to, to the infinite, to understand how incredible living with the Lord is going to be compared to where we're at right now. But it will be incredibly good, just wonderful. And so all we have is hints of certain things and certain issues that will be resolved and how they'll be done. So do you think, Monty, that a lot of how we've been brought up and raised when we think of heaven, we, we, right. we've, we've missed kind of a whole chunk oh, that, of the Oh, that whole thing is a super simplified thing that has no reality and truth. Let me tell you where heaven is at. It is beyond the stars. It's where the throne of God is at. We're not going there. God created the universe and the earth for us. When he comes back, he's going to have a new heavens and a new earth, and that's where we're going to live. So we're going to live here. So that's where we see the lion lay down with the lamb. That's right. The child put his hands in with the, 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 the snake, the adder. That's exactly what We're going to live here in the earth. It, the, the scripture tells this. It says, you will not build and another man inhabit. You will live in what you build. You will not grow and another man eat. You will eat of what you produce. You will not have to call upon the Lord because you're living with the Lord. And the very moment you go to speak to the Lord, the Lord answers you. 
You want to go see the Lord? Go over to Jerusalem. He's right there. Come on over. You will come and worship the Lord. By the way, these feasts, we will be doing them in the kingdom with him. We will be doing all this stuff that we're trying to... We'll be doing it with him in the kingdom. The, the, I tell everybody that this Bible, it will be in the kingdom with him, but I think... I think we're probably going to have a couple of other books added to it. Um, I think there's probably going to be first and second tribulation in there. It'll be the testimonies of the tribulation saints and how God saved them. It'll be part of the story that will go on for others that we will tell and be part of the glory of God. Now, what he's got planned after that, I have no idea. But I do know it's going to be good. Um, so... Uh, it's a continuation. It's not stop this and start something brand new. And there is no zapping up to the clouds and sitting around with bows and arrows and shooting cupids. It, this is what he created for us. This is where we're going to live. This is the place where he's placed his name and he wants to tabernacle with us here. So he's planning on living here with us in the kingdom. There. Anybody else? Question. See hands? I saw the hand. Yes. Yes, ma'am. What about the scripture that says that we are to pray to escape these things? Yes. Um, I have a second question. All right. That what particular description. in the nursing homes and, and, and people like us widow ladies that don't have children around. You know, it's. Let, let's talk about that. That's a great question. Okay, that's a great question. Uh, first of all, uh, the, the scripture that you're referring to, pray that you will escape these things. That's part of the exhortation in Revelation, the letters to the churches, telling us that those, Revelation 2 and 3 is preparation from the Messiah telling the last generation, you've got to get these things corrected in your assemblies. These are issues going on in your assemblies right now. By the way, that's a whole other presentation. I can take you through Revelation 2 and 3, and these are the very issues happening in the Messianic movement in Messianic congregations right now. And I, when I go out and they ask me, I'll pull them out and i say, this is what the Messiah said, this issue that's going on in your assembly. You've got to correct this. You've got to get this. Here's he's telling us we've got to get this fixed to get ready. If we don't, here's the, here's the warning if you don't get this corrected, my coming to you is going to come quickly to you, and you're probably not going to be prepared. Get this corrected so that when you see me coming and this happens, you're ready. You're prepared. You're waiting for the Master to come. You're faithful. You're obedient. Don't be caught off guard. There's no reason why the coming of the Lord should be a shock or a surprise to any one of us. He's already given us all the information. All we have to do is be sober, vigilant, pay attention. Like watchmen, look for the signs, look for the things. And there's very specific things that we see before the, this whole thing begins. Does everybody know what is the thing we're looking for that will tell us that the Great Tribulation has just begun? Do you know what the prophecy is? And anybody doesn't know? Nobody, nobody here says, everybody knows what's the thing we're looking for that is the start of the Great Tribulation. Any question on anybody's part? That's correct. 
There will be an altar set up very soon in Israel to be doing the daily sacrifice, the morning and the evening lamb. The prophecy says that the day that is stopped, once it started again, that's day one of the Great Tribulation. There will be 1,290 days of Great Tribulation. And that's when the book of Revelation kicks in and tells us all about the different judgments and the Antichrist coming to power and the false prophet and all that stuff. Okay, blessed is he, the scripture says, who sees the 1,335th day. He's now giving you the count, the day that we will be in the kingdom. It's all over and done with. We're there with the Messiah. We're observing the Feast of Tabernacles. So it's a very finite period of time. And that's the objective, is from that moment we see what's going on to get through it. Now let me just go ahead and just give you a hint of something. When this event happens, you will not be escaping until at the Passover. You do not have to pack it up and hustle out wherever you're going on that day. You're going to continue to watch certain things happen, but you know the days you're in now. And you're going to see the other prophecies fulfilled. You're going to see the Antichrist come to power. You're going to see the two witnesses begin to stand and begin to prophesy to the world. Okay? And then you're going to observe a Passover. And the Passover comes in the early spring after those events. You're going to eat that Passover, and then you're going to pack it up. And during the days of the bread of haste, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you're going to get out of your house, and you're going to travel to where your brethren are, and you're going to enter into the camp of the righteous. That truly will be the bread of haste for you. That's the pattern. Okay? So I'm telling you, from this day in the winter time. When the altar gets shut down, it, there's probably going to be like 30, 40, 50 days, depending on the particular year and combination of events and when the Passover hits. You're going to have enough time to think about this before you have to pack it up. You're going to be talking to people. This is going to be a major theological controversy. People are going to be saying, hey, this is the start of the Great Tribulation. We've got to do this. And other people say, no, that's not the Great Tribulation. Oh, you've misinterpreted that. You've got it all wrong. You know, and they're going to be saying, and saying, no, that's not correct. You guys are crazy. There's going to be a huge controversy. And a lot of people are going to be wondering, is it true or not true? The Scripture says that when we flee, no one will be chasing us. You will not be panicked. The only reason why you're going to step out and you're going to leave is because you believe what God has said. You will do it as an act of faith on the basis of what he said. Not because anybody pushed you out or forced you to leave. You will be walking by believing what God has said. And on the basis of that, you'll be doing it by faith. And that's essential you know, for what's getting ready to happen. Now, once that happens and we get in the camp, once we're in the camp, then the very next thing that's going to happen is God's going to seal the 144,000 in the camps. All of a sudden, the 144,000 appear. Certain brethren amongst them is going to get the name of God written in their head. They're going to have a little 
short conversation with Gabriel. That's the angel that will do it. And all of a sudden, there's going to be a whole lot of different dynamics going on. And that's about the time the pillar shows up in the, clamp, in, the, in the camp. You're going to see the pillar. And all of a sudden, you're going to see, oh, my goodness, all these prophecies are coming true. This is what the Lord said. There's these people. We're here. And so forth. And we're going to be following the Lord. And at that point, with the rest of the world, that's when the Scripture says, then that which is restraining judgment is pulled back and judgments begin to fall on the earth like you can't believe. After we're safe, they fall on all of the places of the world. Her uh, second part about the nursing homes. And right. That. This, is, uh, this is the reason why the commandment says, and I told you this, on the Feast of Tabernacles, you are commanded to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Learn how to bring the aged, the sick, the lame, the young. Everybody comes. The only people who don't come to the Feast of Tabernacles are the people who aren't going to keep the commandment. If you can keep the Feast of Tabernacles and get there, then you are doing what is essential, the same thing you have to do for um, being in the camp. Now, let me go one more statement. What about the people who don't make it? I told you there's two other destinies. What is a destiny? That is something that's been decided for you. You didn't decide that. It is some people's destiny. They will be taken captive. It is some people's destiny that they will rise up to defend others and they will die by the sword. That's a destiny. You don't choose it. You just do it. But there's a whole bunch of people. Their destiny is to escape, survive, and endure. The people I'm talking to are the ones with that destiny. The ones I'm trying to give you the information is for that destiny. And do you think, Monty, that for the, this, the elderly, that if we would be properly the young men, the young women, the, 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 the youth, um, the laborers, if we're teaching and we're growing at this, we would be being the body of believers and, and helping people getting to, to the, the festivals and, and, and actually teaching these so people that are elderly, they, they, would, they, we, they would have help. You, you know, we would be working as a body more? Absolutely. In fact, the Feast of Tabernacles that I host, we have... Um, Coming on in an average year of where we have, uh, last year we had 1,100 people come. I think more than 170 of them were over 65 years of age. We had a whole host of people who were handicapped. We had a whole host of people that had to be assisted. One of the things that the camp was learning how to do is how to take care of them. We had children. We had babies. We've had babies born. People come out and are about to give birth. They give birth in the camp. We've had people who've had strokes and passed away. All of the life cycle issues. We are told to get out in the camp and form a new community, a camp to the Lord. And one of the things you have to learn when you come out is how do we operate as a community? Stop living you know, where you're relying on the ambulance. and so We've got to take care of ourselves. And that's what you come and you learn. Learn how to care for everybody, take care of everybody. 
And that's when all the brethren who are medical people, they're into the camp and they support. And all the guys that are able-bodied, they help you to keep your camper going. You know, all that kind of stuff. We've got all the people that take care of all. We have the whole security team. I mean, when we come out to the Vista Tabernacles, i got a police force that matches Chandler, Oklahoma. I have a full-blown police force. The city marvels at us. We create a city like that, a fully functioning city. That's what the Lord wants us to learn how to do. Uh, the little book I have written out here you can get called the Tribulation Handbook. This is what we've learned about how to set up the camp of the righteous so that others can set up their camp. And this is what these are the functions. These are the things you need. Leadership needs to know how to do to get set up. And it comes down to like people like that. We have people come out and and um, they can't get around. We learn how to take care of them. We make sure they're taken care of. They're fed. They're they're cared to. But you've got to come to keep the commandment first. If you come, then everybody pitches in and it all happens. Lots of ladies do not know how to camp. You know, they barely come out with a tent. In fact, some of them come out and they ain't got a tent. You know what we do? We have tents for you. We have people who set your tent up. We set up a whole community where the ladies help each other, and we have others that assist them. We have a whole group of single ladies that come out to the Feast of Tabernacles. And they do other functions that help others in the camp. Every autonomous group, every segmented group, there is an activity for it. If you want to see an example of how it really works, go back to Israel and see the kibbutz, how they used to set up the kibbutz. We almost follow the pattern. That's how Israel got going as a nation. Well, we do the same thing with the camps. Yes? In the world besides Israel and you that sets up these kibbutz. There are, and we've been tracking this over the last 20 years. I believe this year the number is going to be in excess of 250 different camps in the continental United States. Let me tell you one of the things that drives it. You've got to get into the lower latitudes because you're in the fall. Northern latitudes, it's very difficult because of the weather. So people congregate to the lower attitudes. And in virtually every state, there are Sukkots being set up. And people are coming from all the regions. I, my Sukkot that we do is kind of a training one. We train up leaders and teach them how to do it. And we get people from, I think last year we had people from 43 different states, three different nations, six provinces of Canada. And we've had them from all over the world. New Zealand, Australia, they come for training. And they set up Sukkots now in all of their various locations. In fact, I'm, I can't even keep up with the number now. They are popping up all over the place. And every year, there's more and more and more. In fact, there are databases being set up by people. I want to go to Sukkot. Where's the closest Sukkot to me? And all of the different Sukkots are located, how to contact them, who to contact, how to get information on where to go. Uh, and so it, it's a massive thing taking place. It's part of the Messianic movement, the growing part of the Messianic movement. The numbers are increasing Huge. Now, back 20 years ago, I knew of three. Now we're 20 years later, there's hundreds. 
because we've been teaching people how to do this. And so they're popping up. Believe me, if you have an interest and you want to know about it, they're happening. Just go looking, you'll find them. They're popping up everywhere. And those are the teams on the... We're working on having Sukkot here, actually, in, in this year. We're going to do a Sukkot. We're going to do a Sukkot. So... Well, you kind of answered it earlier. I was wondering about the house that's divided. Like house is what? A house that's divided, like in a, in a home, you know? Yeah. Unsaved and saved. And then well, you know what the Lord says about it? He says, remember Lot's wife. When he talks about this subject, he says to the saints, remember Lot's wife. When Lot was told that he had to escape, not all of his family made it. His sons-in-law's thought he was joking. They didn't even make an attempt. His wife looked back and died. We are exhorted, remember that story. Don't look back. Leave. Live. Okay? Um, there, some of those other previous biblical stories have lessons about this whole dynamic because um, the whole purpose of the Torah is to give us all the lessons of what happened to that generation that came out of Egypt. But Moses doesn't end on that topic. He ends on the topic of talking to the last generation. Do you know what the last commandment that Moses reminds us of? The very last commandment that he exhorts us to keep is remember to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. He's talking to the last generation. And he has prophesied that when you recall these words, while you're scattered in all the nations where God has scattered you, and you remember you know, what God has done with the others, when you turn back to keeping His commandments, and part of keeping His commandments is to keep the appointed times of the Lord, then I, God will gather you up from every remote place you've been, and I promise to you, I'm going to bring you back to the land that I promised to your fathers. You can read it in Deuteronomy 30. Moses is talking to the last generation. And shortly thereafter, he says as his last exhortation, keep the Feast of Tabernacles this is not an idle word for you. This is your very life to this day. That's what it says. I mean, that's as strong of exhortation as Moses can possibly speak to us. Okay? When the calendar is adjusted to line up with the Gregorian calendar, um, how does that affect the appointed time? Does that adjust when they're held? Well, the, the appointed times are strictly on the Hebrew calendar. It's on the lunar-based calendar. The fact that uh, the Gregorian calendar is different is really, quite honestly, a moot point. Other than when I'm communicating with you, for example, when I'm talking about Passover, and I want you to understand when Passover is coming this year, I'm going to say to you, hey, Passover comes the evening of April 11th. Because, you see, you're familiar with the regular calendar, the Roman calendar. 
I could go ahead and just say to you, hey, it's on the eve of the 14th of Nisan. But do you guys know that this is Nisan, and do you know which day of Nisan it is? You probably don't, unless you get a Hebrew calendar and check it out. So I tell you, hey, it's April 11th, because that corresponds to the evening of the 14th of Nisan. And by the way, it varies each year because the lunar calendar is different from the solar calendar. The Roman calendar is solar-based. Lunar calendar is going to shift ever so slightly. That's the reason why the spring holidays sometimes come at the end of March, sometimes in April. Fall holidays sometimes come in September, sometimes in October, because there's this sliding of the lunar calendar versus the solar calendar. The rest of the world works on the solar calendar. God's calendar works on the lunar calendar. So when we follow the commandments, we have to learn the lunar calendar and follow it. Okay? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'm sorry to have no, that's quite all right. What You said that we were not going to be in heaven no. with, with uh, Jesus. No. Well, what about where it says to be absent from the body is to be instantly with the Lord? What about mm-hmm. all these people that have died and believe in Jesus mm-hmm. and the death, burial, and resurrection mm-hmm. and have accepted him? And he mm-hmm. says those that believe mm-hmm. will be with mm-hmm. him. Mm-hmm. Where are all those souls That's a great question. right now? I got, a, I got a very good answer for you. Are you ready? All right. Where you and I are at right now and you're operating, we're talking to each other. We are living right now in three dimensions of creation. If you count time, that's considered to be the fourth dimension. However, scientifically, they've now proved that time is something connected to the creation of the earth. It's not its own separate dimension. You and I live in three dimensions. Do you know what the scientific world has discovered? There are at least 17 different dimensions in the creation. We think there may be as many as 30 dimensions. There are 30 different planes of the creation. You and I only operate in three. This is how you can have angels doing things and appearing in and out of the world. This is how you can have what appears to be supernatural things. It's not supernatural. It's that we're limited to the creation we're in as mortals, but there's a lot more going on in the creation, including the heavens, including the spirits of God, including evil spirits that are operating and so forth. And there's a lot more going on. Now, all we're given is some information about where we're at right now. So the Scripture says that when we die and we leave this mortal dimension, we slip into some other dimensions. Exactly where is that? I'm not really sure, but I do know they still exist, and they move into a dimension which is called the presence of the Lord. They slip into eternity because time, eternity is where time don't count. It's forever. Time is something that's strictly here on the earth for us to work with. And there's this, just this, it's something. Did you know that if you get off the surface of the earth and you fly around the earth, did you know that time slows down for you? They did this experiment. They took two atomic clocks 
They put one at Edwards Air Force Base, and they hooked up another one. They were completely synchronized. They loaded it onto an aircraft. They threw, flew around the world separate from the Earth, and when they got back, the two clocks didn't match. And this is one of the things about space travel and about astronauts that go up. There's a completely different, there's a warping of time in, you know, in the sci-fi stuff, the Star Trek thing. Have you ever heard him talk about the space-time continuum? Scientists already know that time is a component only of the creation of the Earth. That there's different dimensions. And what the scientific world is finally learning is all this stuff that God's been describing we think are miracles. It turns out it's not so much of a miracle. It just happens to be the other dimensions that God created that we don't understand. So I, that's the reason why I believe, just as the Scripture says, when a person's spirit and soul departs from the body that's carrying you in these dimensions, when your body's stuck in these dimensions, it can't go into eternity. It can't go in the other dimensions, but your soul and your spirit can so it slips into them, and there you get to meet angels. You get to meet other people that are there. And the Messiah, the closest description we have to this is the Messiah describes the place as the bosom of Abraham. And there are people there, and they talk to each other. They know each other. My own mother had two after-death experiences. She told me all about them. When she actually did die, she was not afraid of dying whatsoever. In fact, she had a big smile on her face when she died. And I believe what the Scripture says. I believe death, mortal death, is simply you pass from this set of dimensions, you move into some other dimensions. Your person goes in there, and Lord is there, and He takes care of you, and I'm not sure what the rules are and how everything works there, but he seems to know what it is and everything's fine. Right. You know, we're with him. We're in the presence of him. Now, again, we have very little information given on this. The closest thing we had to this is when Yeshua tells us about a man, a rich man who wouldn't help a, a poor man by the name of Lazarus. And about how Lazarus died, and the rich man died, and the rich man ended up in a place that was very uh, not nice. It was a place of torments. And Lazarus ended up in the bosom of Abraham, and he's just as happy as we can be. And about how the man called out and asked if Lazarus could come and just put a drop of water on his tongue. And he was told, that's not possible. He can't get to you. That there's some sort of gulf between the two. He can't, even if I wanted to, he can't get to where you're at. And you can't get to him. And he said, if you remember, we need to send somebody from this place back to people on the earth and tell them about this place to warn them so they'll be ready. And you, told, you remember what he was told? He said, no, it's not going to happen. Though someone come from this place and go back, they won't believe. And furthermore, they have Moses and the prophets. They have enough information to understand this. If they'll believe. All they have to do is listen to what Moses and the prophets have said. They've told them what this is all about. So that's where we're at. God said, you have enough information. And I've told you what we're going to do. Now you either believe me or you don't. There's nothing more to do about this. So 
you know, as, as a minister who I've ministered to many people who've passed into eternity, I'm operating on the premise of what the Lord has said. And I've sat right there and looked right into the face of people that are passing away and said, don't worry about it. The Lord will, you know, the Lord will take care of you. You're fine. It's just you're going to pass. I hope that helps you as an answer a little bit. Yeah. Everything you've heard about this subject is true, what the Lord has said. But the, but the more reasonable explanation is there's got to be these other dimensions that God has made. Uh, by the way, let me, let me, the scientific world is now telling us we have measured at least 17 different dimensions. We know there's 17 different dimensions. We think there's enough evidence to suggest there may be as many as 30. Well, if you remember, there are three heavens. There's three heavens. The first heaven is up at the clouds. The second heaven is the stars. The third heaven is beyond the stars. Okay. But the, it, let, me, let me use a physics thing with you. If I were to send a, I'm going to send a message uh, into space, and by the way, the, the thing that's going to carry the message is going to be the speed of light. Okay. Like in a radio thing, RF energy, can, the fast the fastest it can travel is the speed of light. So I'm going to send a message. If I wanted to get to the nearest star, another sun, it would have to travel 4.1 light years. It would take 4.1 years just to get to the nearest star. How is it possible that we can speak with heaven, speak with the Lord, the Lord hears us immediately? How is that possible? I can tell you how it's possible. You ever seen one of those little hanging ball things where there's little six hanging balls and it hangs down and you take the one ball and it falls and then it kicks the other ball up that way? All you have to do is have them perfectly touching each other and what you do here is instantly felt over there. It doesn't travel in time. It's just immediately felt there. Apparently, by the aid of the Holy Spirit, the whole universe, and we are all connected to God. So the moment I have a thought with the Lord, He instantly knows it. It doesn't travel through space. It doesn't go through the dimensions. Because the Spirit of the Lord is with me, He's got it. And when He wants to communicate to me, if I learn how to follow the Spirit, He can communicate back to me too. But most people are not trained to listen to the Holy Spirit. And they don't, and it's kind of a mystery. It's kind of, I'm not really sure what's going on here. Dreams, visions, uh, impulses, thoughts, you know, kinds of things, signs, symbols. You know, we're all learning how to understand the Spirit of the Lord, how He communicates. And He uses a variety of ways to do it. It's the, a, a spiritually mature person learns how to do this, learns how to listen to the Lord, hear the voice of the Lord. He talks about it's obviously not in the same kind of communication methodology that we have in this dimension. It's in it's what Paul says. We learn spiritual words and spiritual thoughts, things that are considered to be foolishness to the natural man. But that's how we spirit by the spirit. We do this. So, so the spirit is something that transcends all the dimensions. 
God's presence is in all of the dimensions. And somehow that's how it gets covered. That's a kind of a scientific version theory of to explain how in the world does the Lord work. But we're now getting more evidence. You know, this is the days of the final fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. We are now learning more things about how the creation really works and how what's happening with it. Uh, and to show you where the scientific world is at and struggling with this, physics, you know, the science of big things, gravity and light and energy, the, all of the rules of physics don't work when you get down inside of an atom. When you start getting down to breaking down a proton and you start breaking down into a neutron and the, the, the tiniest things that form an atom and a molecule, all of the laws and rules of physics don't work. They're just what? We call it quantum mechanics. There's a whole nother science that we've had to create for that. Right now, the scientific world is trying to find what is the linkage, because we know it has to exist, trying to find the linkage between physics, big world science, and quantum mechanics, small world physics, and they call it the singularity. And right now they believe they have found, they have a name for this, they have found a particle and it's called the Hogan boson, the, the Hagen boson particle. And they think they've found the evidence of the Creator. Because God says, I am the Lord God and I hold everything together in the palm of my hand. So there has to be a force, something that is beyond the forces and energies and matters we understand, there's got to be something that does it. They think the collider thing, the big super collider in Europe, they got their first measurement of it. And they're calling it the God particle. They think they found the evidence of how God does it. I mean, this is a scientific world. I mean, that's how far you know this stuff is coming. You know what they call it? You can go onto the internet and you can study, read all about this. It's called, you ready? The theory of everything. <laughs> and it's about God. It's about scientists finding the evidence of the of the Creator, yeah. and where the where the science is at. Go ahead. One more one more question, Ronnie. Mm -hmm. well, I just wanted to have you to expound on uh, <clears throat> when we see these things happening in Israel. Yes. That we do not have to have a temple. Because no, 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 no. Let's make sure. Yeah, let me. It's a very popular Christian. There's a bunch of books that came out on. Oh, the temple has to be rebuilt. Oh, contraire. The way the temples were built. Let me tell you how the temples were built. You set a cornerstone. You measure the court of Israel, and in the middle of the court of Israel, you then set up the altar. The altar is set up. The altar is operating before the first stone of the sanctuary is ever set. 
the sanctuary, the temple building with the holy place and the holy of holies and all the furnishings, all that, that is set and created only after the altar is operating. Zerubbabel's temple, the second temple period, the altar, it was operating for, I believe, 47 years before the actual temple was actually built. And it was called the temple, and people came and worshipped the Lord. Once you have the table, once you have the altar, you have the means to worship the Lord and follow the commandments. Okay? So a lot of people are going around spectrum, and, and here's the reason why they're saying that. In 2 Thessalonians 2, there's a specific prophecy that talks about the Antichrist, that he will take his seat in the holy place. Now, I always remind everybody... You know, like me, probably like you, way back when I was in Sunday school, we always had that nice lady who came in with a flannel graph and would explain the tabernacle and the temple. And she always explained to us that the first chamber of the sanctuary is called the holy place, and the second chamber is the holy of holies. And so we hear this word, the holy place, and we think, oh, that's the first chamber of the sanctuary. However, that was for the tabernacle in the wilderness. Let me tell you what the term holy place for the temple in Jerusalem means. It's not talking about in the sanctuary. The holy place is the whole temple mount. The permanent temple mount is the holy place. So when the prophecy says he'll take his seat in the holy place, it just means he's going to take his seat on the temple mount not the tabernacle in the wilderness. And so you don't need a temple sanctuary to be built. All you need is a temple mount where the altar is functioning, and if the Antichrist goes on the temple mount, sets up his image, and makes his proclamation, you just satisfied the prophecy. And that's a case of not understanding the temple in Jerusalem versus the tabernacle in the wilderness. And that's where that confusion comes from. Okay? Great question. Right. That's correct. There is a realm, the bosom of Abraham, that is separate from the mortal. And when he died, he was there when Yeshua died, his body was put into the tomb. Yeshua went into paradise. He went with him into that place. He went into another dimension, but it wasn't the same place. Well, let me explain what that is. <laughs> um, in Jerusalem, where we believe the crucifixion took place, there's a great Jewish cemetery. And the cemetery there are what are called ossuary boxes. They're these boxes that are actually above the ground. They have lids on them. And when a great earthquake comes, it bounces the lids off, and we refer to it as the tombs have been opened. Now, there is a single reference in the Scripture that says that certain people on the day that happened in Jerusalem saw certain persons that had died before and give testimony that they were seeing people that they hadn't seen before. Okay? 
we don't have any more evidence than that that's just a singular testimony. It's just, wow, a lot of interesting things were happening. We're not quite sure exactly what happened, but that's part of the testimony. But as far as the tombs were opening, that is a very specific well-known thing that there in the great Jewish cemetery where where the prophets are buried, where many Jews have been buried over the years and so forth, that when you have an earthquake in Israel, it bounces those lids off all the time. And they have to go back in and put the lids back on the boxes. The tombs have been opened. That's that reference. Does that help? Okay. Other questions? We're almost running out of time. We've got time for a little bit more. Yes, ma'am. Correct. Right. I do. I've heard his testimony. Okay. Praise the Lord. I, I I have no verification for it. I I accept his testimony. I despise no prophetic utterance. But as the scripture says, despise no prophetic utterance, but examine everything carefully. That's what it says. Now, I don't have any more evidence to either substantiate or disprove what he said. So I'm under the instruction, do not look down upon and do not despise that prophetic utterance. I'm not. Let his testimony be what it is. Now, how can we correlate it to other things and other prophecies and other things we have in the Scripture? Um, I don't know how to correlate that. I, I only have the evidence of the Scripture for me to work with. I'm going to try to stay with that. And maybe the Lord will reveal more later. I don't know. We'll, I do know this, that God can do some very interesting things with people. He can make jackasses talk, you know, to people. Uh, he can take people. He can bring his throne down. He can pick up Elijah and Enoch, and he can take them up. Okay? I mean, he's done some interesting things. Now, it's not... For everybody that he's done these, but he's done some things, and I don't have any dispute with the Lord of any of these testimonies. If that's what he did, great. The God I serve is an incredible God. He is. And I've had some experiences that other people haven't have, and I take that into account, you know. And um, But I don't call anything the truth, and I don't try to force anything on anybody without the evidence of two or three. And that's how we establish the truth for others to work with. Um, we do know that sometimes God gives an individual a dream or a vision for their benefit. And so if it edifies them and encourages them, the Lord, praise the Lord. Amen. That's his business. He has the right to do that with any servant he wants. Mike Kippa? Well, this is a traditional, um, there's two names for this. One is Kippah, which is from the root word of Kippur, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. The, I wear this showing 
that my atonement comes from the God of Israel. That's my public testament. Kippur. My atonement comes from the God of Israel. Um, it also has another name, which is Yamaka. Yamaka has, uh, comes from two Hebrew words, Yar Mulka, fear of the king. When I wear this, I am saying I am in awe of the king of Israel. Well, it's traditional for Jews, but anyone can wear one if that's what your testimony is. And there's a lot of Messianic brethren that aren't necessarily Jews. They wear them all the time. Um, it's, it's more of a custom. There's no commandment to it. Okay? It's a custom. It's, it's sometimes a tradition. With the Jewish people, it's a tradition. If you're going to go to the hotel, you're going to walk up to the, where the Orthodox are at, you will have one on. They will not let you walk up without one. You will show that you're in awe of the King of Israel or you will not go to the wall. You must show that that's your testimony or else they won't let you. So they'll give you a kippah and you've got to wear one when you go up to do it. Yes, ma'am. I'm sorry, I can't quite hear you. Yes. Yes. Right. 1 Corinthians 11 is a, is a passage that Paul specifically talks about head coverings. And one of the things that he basically is covering is that it's appropriate for a woman to have a head covering. And specifically, uh, her long hair is a minimum is her head covering. It's a shame, he says, for a man's head to be covered. If you go back into the Greek, you'll find out what he's saying is, it is a shame for a man to have an effeminate head covering on him. It's a shame for him to have the covering of a woman on his head. And what he's really teaching, what he's really giving the Corinthians, is this great Torah commandment. There is a very specific set of Torah laws that says that a man shall dress and appear as a man, and he will never appear as a woman. A woman is not permitted to dress and as appear as a man. The most general way we do that is women will have their hair grooming. It will look feminine. It will be the hair of a woman. It could be long. It's put up. You know, it's, it's her. She has her own style. She has her attire, which will be the woman, the attire of a woman. If a man dresses his hair up like a woman and he wears the attire of a woman, this is considered a gross transgression of God and of great offense. Um, in, in, let, let me just go ahead and say this to you. This, this is the sin. I'm walking along and I walk up behind a person that I think is a woman. I, I see her attire, I see her head, I see her covering, and so forth. And I walk up, and so I'm expecting to see a woman, and I suddenly get to the front, and it turns out it's a guy. That is offensive. Vice versa. If I think I'm supposed to be addressing a guy, and I walk up, and I'm going to talk to a man, and suddenly it's, all, it's a woman. It's offensive. You know, God says a man is to be a man and a woman is to be a woman. One of the commandments is that men, one of our groomings is, is our facial hair. 
the commandment for facial hair is simply groom yourself as a man. Men grow beards so they look like men. I don't care what you do with your hair. I don't care what outfit you run. you got a beard on. You're a man. I mean, everybody knows. Okay. That women apparently don't like to have the appearance of beards for some reason. But it's a good thing for a man. Okay. And so that's part of the commandments. And what Paul was really giving there, if you go back into the Torah teaching, he's giving a very powerful Torah teaching about the commandments of men shall attire as men, women will look like women. Don't cross the two up. And by the way, in the world we're living in today, the transgender thing and changing your gender identity things, it is gross gross transgression of the commandments of the Lord. And it's rampant in our world today. It's like, oh, men don't even get to be men anymore. Women don't get to be women. You get to choose and pick. You've got to be kidding me. For crying out loud, every man has the Y chromosome. Women don't have it. Yeah. Let me, let me carry that out because you're asking the issue about authority. When I wear this, I am submitting and saying I'm under the authority of God, the King of Israel. A woman, uh, I hope I don't offend you, but you, by you wearing long hair, bearing a scarf, putting any covering over your head, you know what you're doing it for? It's in honor of your husband. You are giving the testimony that I'm under the authority of my husband. That's a very respectful thing you're doing for your husband. The beauty of your hair is for his honor. Right, and then, then, then you're under his authority. He's under the authority of God. He's performing the priestly role of his family. Money. We're all... Under authority. On what scripture from what, what, what question? Transgender. This, this. But like, well, Deut- what? Deuteronomy what? Deuteronomy 6 4? Okay. Um, Deut- why don't we go ahead and do this? Can we go ahead and close down? Okay. And then if, if people want to continue to ask them questions, we can do that. But I know we're going to go ahead and release for this tonight. Well, we probably need to go ahead and just bring it to a conclusion, yeah. guys. Is there any last absolute question somebody needs to ask before we can go ahead and close that? I mean, we could go on forever all night long about all this great stuff. Are, are you comfortable, ma'am, on what you've heard and seen so far? Okay, let me just go ahead and tell you guys, I have a ton of material on this. I have over 250 articles I've written on this subject. I have over 750 teachings. I've been at this a while. Okay? I have charts that I can walk you through all the prophecies, every verse. I have a complete commentary on the book of Revelation. I have complete teachings on all of the prophetic scenarios, how the feasts tie in. Depending on how much you would like to learn, I have materials that you can dig into. So it's not like you're just going to run out of stuff. Absolutely not. 
The scriptures are for every believer that belongs to God. I am a Jewish believer. I can assure you that every commandment was intended by God for every person. I'm Jewish by birth. I am a recognized Messianic Jew. Um, I will take you to the, where the gospel was first preached by God to Abraham. And Paul teaches this. The gospel was first preached by God to Abraham that in his seed would all the families of the earth be blessed. There's not one exclusive club in this world.